Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We are going to introduce you to uh, Dr. Paul Viotti. Paul, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Dr. Don. Oh, I'm so happy to have you, Paul. And thank you very much for agreeing to uh, share your story. I think it illustrates a great many uh, common experiences among our audience here in the Monterey Bay. And I'll just do a little intro. Uh, Dr. Viotti is a professor of political science at one of our fine Northern California universities. He's an avid surfer. He is also uh, one of my uh, well, best conversationalists, I would say, amongst my many very good conversationalists who are patients. So anyway, Paul, uh, a couple of years ago, um, as I recall, it was December 2019, uh, you were floating in Hawaii, having a wonderful surfing day, and then, well, why don't I let you pick up the story? Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, it's I'm delighted to be here and to share this story, which um, went on a much more sinuous path than I might have ever imagined. You go out surfing one day, and after a thousand times of doing exactly that, and then it, it can change your life. Uh, and, and that day, uh, it certainly did. Um, so I was on Oahu, where a lot of my family live, and it lived for a long time, and surfing on the windward side of the island. The waves weren't even that big, and, and I think I took them for granted, um, we, if they would be something that we surfers call shore pound, where the waves just break right onto the shore. And so I was playing around with a very fun board uh, called an alaya that is basically a surfboard that has no fins and uh, um, uh, it developed by a, a sh- well, brought back into circulation by a shaper named Tom Wagner. We won't talk about surfboards right now as much as I'd like to, but I was having a great time with this. New, new toy of mine out there, and it was probably surf, you know, two to three feet. And before I knew it, I was on a wave um, sliding across it. And something happened, and I landed right on my head uh, on the shore, uh, well, in the water, but uh, on the surface, and um, basically started to lose consciousness. And my brother and sister were there at the time with me. My family was there. Brother walked me out of the water. And I was experiencing um, the beginnings of a TBI, totally disoriented. Uh, the, the world had shifted in so many ways right away in terms of color. And I knew something was going on that wasn't uh, quite right. So this is what I thought it would be. Okay, I must have a concussion here. And your initial impulse with, with that is to, well, like any injury, if you can walk out, um, let's shake it off. And so returned home that night uh, realized that things still weren't going well and uh, headed over to the emergency room where they diagnosed me with a, a loss of consciousness concussion. Uh, and the advice was the classic advice that I'm sure you know to spend about a week or so in a dark room without any stimuli and that gradually things would get better. But um, they really didn't get better and it became this huge saga that, that has uh, gone on and on. And so one wave has led to this really, um, it's become interesting, I suppose, but a uh, long journey toward this 
rare phenomenon, maybe not as rare as we think, called a CSS leak. So how does somebody go from catching a wave to acquiring a CSS leak? And that's what this, uh, that's what this segment is going to be about. Uh, Dr. Paul, I want to ask you a question. The mechanism of the injury, I, I'm trying to visualize it, I'm not a surfer, but uh, it sounds like you essentially landed on your head. Was there was it were you, was your did your neck bend or were you or or did you really just kind of flip upside down and land you know axially everything all the way right onto your head onto the top of your head no, and uh, landed uh that's a great question i was going down the wave face and i landed uh i wiped out uh normally when you wipe out you have you know the sort of instinctive thing that kicks in and you just roll and it's really fun and you get up and you go out there again but this time i landed directly on the posterior side of my head and mm. the neck bent a lot. It bent a lot and it was sore, of course. And I was thinking, well, I'm lucky that I didn't, you know, that, that I could walk out of the water in that scenario. A person could break their neck, right? And so mm. I thought, okay, here's what I'm dealing with is a concussion and I need to rest and then things will get better and I'll be back out in the water before I know it or so I thought. So, you know, the, 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 you go to the, emergency room and why they see this stuff all the time. The initial recommendation is that, okay, well, they want to do a CT scan uh, to rule out brain bleeding. They don't want to see that. And I, I'm an amateur here, so I don't study medicine. I, yeah, that's basically we, it. We, we make sure your brain isn't torn to the point of bleeding. We know you have micro tears. And then we basically tell you what to expect and also to come back if what uh, you what we've told you to expect isn't happening. Uh, so you weren't recovering quickly enough. And I understand you saw a neurologist. Uh, did they give you any, did they suspect anything at that point? Or did they just think you were taking longer to recover than normal? Well, so I, I stayed in Hawaii resting in the dark room for a couple of weeks. And then I came back to Santa Cruz and I still felt a little bit off. And by that, I mean, if you get a TBI, and this is from my experience, but the world changed. The color perception was different, taste perception different. Uh, I'm a professor, and so I had to take the rest of the semester off because I was incapable of giving a lecture or teaching class. Um, and I still, the, the cognitive impairment and these strange neurological symptoms persisted. I saw a local neurologist here in Santa Cruz, the main one who works at Dominican, and who, you know, again, said this was pretty typical for that kind of an injury and that a concussion would need, in some cases, six weeks uh, to resolve. But then in six to eight weeks, I could be back out um, at my usual spots and surfing in Santa Cruz and, and uh, life would be normal again. But that mm-hmm. turned out not to be the case. Now, when you went back to surfing, something unusual happened. Tell us about that when you tried to go back. Yeah, yeah and this is important. To, uh, so after a period of rest, I would get to a point where I would feel like myself again, right? Okay, well, here I go. I, I can teach classes now. I can, I can walk. I can do all these things. I can drive and, and uh, not feel disoriented. So I would try to, with my friends, I'd, I'd go out and, and paddle. And then immediately, even before catching waves, I would just feel disoriented and dizzy. And that disorientation and dizziness would persist you know, a day or two, sometimes longer than that before it resolved again. And it was the most frustrating thing because here you'd be so close to getting back to the thing that you love, uh, that you spend a lot of time doing and, 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 and be kept away from it. And so this kept happening over and over again. And then neurologist said, you know, 
not an unusual phenomenon for people that have concussions. And we call it post-concussion syndrome. And guess what you need to do? You need to continue to rest. And so he recommended that I continue to rest each time I would see him. Well, you're still not better. So three more months of, of, of rest. And then, and you'll get back out there. And, and then there was this other disruption that happened that some of your listeners right remember might might remember, which occurred in uh, in about February or March of 2020, right? Yeah, a little which, something that changed our lives forever. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, exactly. Tell us, tell us about yeah. your lovely experience with uh, COVID. Yes, yes, it was a lovely experience with a novel virus, and and I was a, you know, maybe because of uh, my. Uh, university teaching profession, I um, probably picked it up pretty early in the the cycle uh, and um, uh, had a pretty bad case uh, in terms of, I mean, certainly the worst respiratory infection I've ever had, you know, had a lot of the the other severe COVID symptoms and was just knocked out. A lot of people here will will have similar uh, memories of that. I didn't have to be hospitalized, but it kept me off my feet for, you know, about, you know, two months or something like this. And, you were my first COVID we, patient, you know, and I remember examining oh, right? you. I remember examining you in the parking lot over at my Mission Street office oh, yeah. because we were still on like lockdown, lockdown. And I'm like, okay, your lungs sound okay. I, w- I was like in full hazmat gear too, you know. I mean, sure. I, I had the outfit, I had the jumpsuit, you know, because we had no idea. It was so early. And I remember something you told me. You said, oh, I got a COVID test and it was negative. And I said, did it hurt? And he said, no. You said, no, it was a piece of cake. And I'm like, okay, that was not a good quality test. But we later, we later did establish that you did have COVID. And then lockdown really kept you inactive for far longer than we would have hoped. Uh, but then in June, you went back to, uh, well, you got back to cognitive normal and, uh, you kept trying to go out and surf. Yeah, the most frustrating thing, and I would do what a lot of listeners do, try to find that community online of people who have had TBIs that are trying to get back to activity, returning to play, as they call it, but get frustrated by this very general enigmatic post-concussion syndrome. And so the neurologist said here, said again, well, it looks like you still have post-concussion syndrome. And he tried to explain various mechanisms that, you know, could be happening, right? But uh, the only thing to do would right. be kept ex- kept explaining it. But then you yeah. had a shift in your symptoms. The the um, for no apparent reason, you were still trying, and then you got the quote unquote worst headache of your life, which is the last thing any doctor wants to hear because we immediately think ruptured aneurysm, and then the last. Oh yeah! Every time he moved his head, he'd get these weird. And you're thinking, "Oh my God, miss this person's going to die of a ruptured aneurysm." And uh, so you uh, you head for the ER, and you were admitted. Yeah, no, that's right. So I I, I had the, the the classic sort of thund- well, I guess it turns out not to be classic, but I had a thunderclap headache uh, and a ten out of ten headache. Um, you know, uh, I went to the ER. It was severe, and actually, I'd gone to urgent care in town here because I'm trying to think. Okay, don't panic here. Let's just get checked out. It's probably nothing. And then they they send me right away over to the ER, and then I get admitted right away. And it's very interesting, right? Then I undergo this series of tests locally to figure out, you know, what could possibly be going on. 
And um, I realized something. When you're in the hospital for days, largely on your back, you begin to develop, I guess you could call it a heuristic or, or a, a sense that, you know, I think there's a, there's a postural component of what's going on because here all of this time that I'm spending lying down, I'm not noticing uh, the occipital headache and the other symptoms. Let, let me say the other symptoms that go along with that um, uh, are a lot of nausea, right? And, and, and it can get to the point of vomiting. And then a lot of ear ringing or tinnitus or tinnitus, right, it, as well. But the most interesting thing would happen. I'd be lying, lying down for, you know, in the hospital and the symptoms would, uh, would go away. But as soon as I would stand up, they'd come right back. Right. And so I'm thinking, oh, gosh, what's what's happening here? I hope there is a simple answer to this. Right. And uh, uh, if we go back to that covid infection, another thing that I've been dealing with after the covid infection is this very pesky uh, situation called POTS, positional orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. I had noticed that my heart uh, was starting to go into these strange tachycardia events and I should mention, before I was, was hospitalized locally here uh, with that headache, I was also trying to treat a condition that I had thought developed um, as a result of COVID. Do you want to say a few things about POTS? I do, second? because the report, POTS was something that I knew about because of a patient who had been diagnosed with it, and essentially it's an autonomic dysregulation, so the programming and the crosstalk between your heart and your blood vessel wall isn't working. Normally when you stand up, what's supposed to happen is the blood vessel wall is supposed to tighten up in your legs so that all the blood doesn't head for your ankles. And if that doesn't happen, uh, you tend to, your blood pressure will, will drop. The tachycardia part is, uh, so that, that's orthostatic hypotension, and normally you get a slight increase in the heart rate, maybe 10, 15 points as the blood pressure drops. But in POTS, you get this massive surge. Your heart rate will double to 100 and from 60 to 120, even up to 180 very suddenly, and you'll feel it pounding in your chest. And it's not moving blood really well at that moment. And so people become very uncomfortable and have to lie down. It's not well, it, the etiology of this is not well understood. So no surprise when COVID cases started to go into post-COVID, along about the end of summer, you start hearing about long COVID and post-COVID symptoms, because we, we've got six months now of cases. And POTS was one of the things that was really in everybody's head, because most of us, I'd heard of it, but most of the other doctors were like, what's this POTS thing, unless they were a neurologist? And it's like, oh, well, it's part of post-COVID. Since you'd had COVID, I think we all sort of just assumed that that's what you were having. But actually... Uh, that was another, what they call in a mystery, a red herring. Absolutely. That that entire summer when I had been trying to return to surfing, I was taking some modest amount of medication to try to control POTS. And it's really an unknown. Some people with exercise actually can uh, can improve right. their POTS. They like reboot the nervous system. Also, I want to emphasize, you had had a neck and a brain MRI and the list of things that you didn't have on those studies included CSF leak. So it, it was, it you know, all the king's horses time at this moment. And so we did what we always do when um, 
we can't put Humpty and we can't put Humpty together as a case. We go and call in Stanford. And so that was when you headed up to Stanford. And I be- were you transferred directly from Dominican to Stanford? I, I'm not clear on that. No. And so there was a, another neurologist in town who was very kind and, and uh, everybody when it was, was treating me with excellent care. But the MRIs, right, the standard approach for a CSF leak is to do a brain MRI and a neck MRI. Sometimes they, they, when they're doing them at local county hospitals, they may omit contrast, which in my case happened. But they're, they're looking for something really obvious with the CSF leak. But it turns out a lot of the time in diagnostic uh, workups of CSF leak, the findings are very, very subtle, and they can't be seen with that imaging. And so the neurologist who was seeing me at the time discharged me with a neck brace and said, here is some different medicine for your pot. Why don't you try this out? But things kept getting worse. Uh, I, I, they said, okay, if you do have a CSF leak, go home, lie down for 72 hours. And at the time, I thought, this is going to be impossible. How am I supposed to lie down for 72 hours? It's something that I would lying down would be something that I would get really accustomed to over the next year. But uh, mm-hmm. I did that. And every time I would stand up, I would get a 10 out of 10 headache. And so on the advice of, of um, uh, another ER doc that I'm friends with and on your advice, I, I got over to Stanford uh, emergency room and they admitted me right away as well. Because when I was discharged here, Dominican was pretty clear. Look, if you have this, yeah, too much. Uh, let's. I, I think um, I want to. I have to interrupt you for just a moment, and sure. uh, we'll we'll continue this. Uh, but I just need to remind people that you're listening to K Squid ninety point seven FM. Uh, this is a special live uh, interview on Ask Doctor Don. We're ta- listening and talking with uh, Doctor Paul Viotti, describing an amazing medical odyssey. We're about. Uh, not even a year into the story. And so I hope that you're uh, enjoying this as much as I am and also maybe picking up some pointers about uh, medicine. But uh, let's, uh, bef- I want to interrupt you for just a moment and talk about uh, CSF leaks and expand on, on that as a medical topic so that our audience has context, Dr. Pauls. So uh, first of all, the most common cause of CSF leaks is uh, actually putting a needle through the uh, dura to inject drugs into the CSF, and that's done very routinely in childbirth, in the labor and delivery suite. We call the anesthesiologist over, and this is done to help the mother endure the pains of labor and is a common practice, often, not too often, or we wouldn't it wouldn't be a common practice, we will get the report from the mom that when she sits up or stands up, she gets a headache, a bad headache, and it gets better when she lies down. Sometimes this can occur a week or so after going home after the delivery. And I like to think of that as kind of like there's a tiny little perforation, but then maybe that person coughs or sneezes or lifts something, increases their intra thoracic pressure and pushes down in just the right way to open it up more and develops the headache. The treatment for, and, and this is empirical. Now, the thing about a CSF leak from a lumbar puncture 
is we always know where the hole is because we go in at L4, L5 interspace. And that's what how we're taught to do a lumbar puncture. If we're an anesthesiologist, we might go higher uh, because we can't get into that space. But in general, that's the sweet spot and how I was trained. So we know the hole's right there because that's where it was. And so we can take a little blood out of the patient's arm. And blood has this wonderful property of turning into goo very rapidly when it's exposed to oxygen or collagen or anything that isn't the inside of a blood vessel. And so you drop a couple of cc's of blood and you reinsert um, your uh, needle, but you don't go quite as deep. So instead of going into the CSF space, you stay on the other side of the dura and you just squirt um, a wad of blood. And that creates a clot. And so it acts as a plug plugs up the patch, and when there's no longer fluid leaking through the patch, it's able to heal itself in pretty short order and mission accomplished. Well, that that helps if you know where the leak is. So pick it up, Paul. Yeah, of course, indeed. So so I, I went to Stanford and uh, was, was hospitalized there. And, you know, they're not, I mean, when a patient comes in and, and, and says that among the things that are being considered you know that 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 includes the CSF leak. They're they're going to work you up for everything, which they did, right? So I had another full series of MRIs from the brain to the uh, lumbar area, with and without contrast, and and they still were not finding an apparent leak. And so the next thing that they do is a is a most unpleasant procedure called a myelogram, where they so the, the spinal canal itself, right, contains spinal fluid that, that's also circulated into the brain. It provides the, the suspension uh, for the brain, um, uh, among other essential functions. And so they essentially, to diagnose CSF leaks, if it's not evident on the MRI series, uh, which, by the way, for those that are ever going to be worked up for a CSF leak, it, it, it's not enough just to get a brain and a neck MRI that, in many cases, will not rule out a CSF leak, but that's not common knowledge among many practicing neurologists because CSF leaks are quite quite rare. So I have a, I had a myelogram where essentially you're injected the spinal canal with uh, iodinated contrast, and that provides kind of you know the contrast then moves through the spinal canal and. Uh, up to the brain, and they, they essentially take a little movie of, of how that fluid moves, and they can see it through the, through the x-ray series and then be able to find out if it's leaking anywhere, right? And so I had that initial myelogram, which was then suspicious for a CSF leak because it looked like they were seeing some uh, contrast accumulate outside of the dura, but the, the, the resolution of of even a you know three Tesla MRI or something like this is is still not granular or detailed enough to, to see this stuff. But at that point, because of the symptoms and because of the um, the uh, the imaging that was suspicious, they decided to treat me in the hospital. This was probably the the most one of the most painful procedures I've had with a blind blood patch, which they don't know where the leak is exactly. It could be in many places. So what they do is they you, you know, you uh, you're get you're you've got one IV line 
essentially on, on your arm that's established to take your blood. And then they put a 20 gauge needle, something like that, I think, into your, into your, uh, spinal canal in the lumbar area. And then they inject as much blood as you can take. You know, you start to feel that pressure in your head. You get a high pressure headache from that. And then you remain hospitalized and lying down or resting for 72 hours. And the idea behind it is really interesting. It's the coagulative properties of the blood, but also uh, that the blood apparently uh, can act as a chemical messenger. It's not supposed to be there. And so it creates inflammation and can lead to scarring and other uh, healing of the of the leaks. And so it was a, it seemed like a miracle because I left Stanford and I, I felt normal again. I thought this is fantastic. I've been cured, but then I was deflated, uh, three days later, uh, uh, when my symptoms came back and, uh, as a CSF leak patient, now I know that's not an uncommon thing from blood patches that they can heal leaks, but it can have a temporary effect. And then the, the leak can open again. And so, at that point, and that would have been September of last year, I was just starting to my semester teaching classes. I had shifted my classes online because it's impossible, basically, to teach either sitting or standing with with those symptoms. Uh, and so, for the fall of 2021, I had only about five to ten minutes of time on my feet before I would get a ten out of ten headache. So I had to do all of my work as a professor. You can kind of picture this, right? Uh, lying down on the couch via Zoom. And I'm just going to say, thank goodness for processing power and technology because I could use a virtual background and uh, nobody had to see me <laughs> lying on my couch teaching a seminar on public finance and budgeting or international relations or something like that, right? I was able to carry on my duties, thankfully, teaching-wise as a professor. But it was quite miserable because I couldn't, I could barely get on my feet to make coffee. I had to eat my meals, you know, out of the microwave because I only had five to 10 minutes of time to address these just awful symptoms. And so what at that point, Stanford had referred me to, they have a headache clinic, which is fantastic. Uh, and there is a, a CSF leak guru there named Dr. Ian Carroll, uh, who had a family member, his, his daughter, had had symptoms like this, and it can be very, very severe when the when the leak is is bad. The brain itself begins to sag, and then you can speak to this better than I can. But the the um, essentially when the brain sags, all kinds of processes can be interfered with uh, in terms of autonomic functioning and whatnot. And so this doctor observed these symptoms in his own family member and then was able to treat her or, or, you know, have her treated with blood patches, and she got better. And so then he, it's a great story, actually, went from being an anesthesiologist to a CSF leak guru who treats patients with targeted blood patches. And so that was, that was yet another step of the journey. And so I went to Stanford for um, um, three or four months, and I had some series of, like, six targeted blood patches where they, they inject uh, – fibrin glue, which is a... How did they target them? I don't understand how they, how they target the blood patch. How did, is the the myelography, uh, they're going where they see the leakage? Is that what's happening? Yeah. So essentially when you have um, uh, 
a radiologist, a standard radiologist, look at images. They're trained to look at images for, as you know, for all kinds of things. But when it comes to specialty medicine, uh, when you have somebody that's actually uh, looking for CSF leaks themselves, um, they can they can see suspicious areas uh, uh, more frankly. Uh, And so um, essentially, uh, this is a great part of the narrative. If somebody who is listening or if somebody knows uh, someone, you know, if you're listening and you know somebody with symptoms like this, if they're, if a person that you know or yourself, they're having a really, really bad headache or even severe, severe neck pain, it can be, it can, because when I get my leak symptoms, it radiates all the way down into the neck as well. To get into a CSF leak clinic, you have to do this most interesting thing, which is called the 48th um, flat 48 hour flat test and uh essentially what you do is you you carve out a weekend and i was very motivated to do this to to buy some more hours of upright time i uh immediately after getting out of stanford did a 48 hour flat test after my first patch had failed and noticed the same thing i don't have i feel totally normal when i'm lying on my back uh um and i you you, you lie down for 48 hours you have people bring you uh, coffee and tea and water and food and things like this, and you get up only very briefly if you need to use the bathroom, right? And you try to do, minimize that uh, as much as you can. And you, you, you take a special log of symptoms, and Stanford has their own 48-hour flat test protocol. that Which you, you kindly sent to me. So if anyone is looking for that protocol, I will uh, just send me an email Go ahead, Dr. Paul. Of course, yeah. So uh, so I, I do this 48-hour flat test, and I'm lying on my back, and I basically feel fine. I can do everything. I, I mean, it's a little awkward, but I can teach my classes. I can do my writing. Uh, and, um, but uh, standing up immediately right after that, then the occipital or headache or the headache in the back of the head comes back full full force, and it's just absolutely miserable. You can't even... You can't drive to the store, right? You, you can't do anything. I was fully dependent on friends for that fall to come and empty my garbage and take yeah, it outside. Because you and live alone. And my, I might add, you right. live in a three-story apartment. So, you know, it's yeah. what, the ultimate split level. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I spent, you know, so I, I was accepted to the CSF League clinic at Stanford. They have a, a headache uh, uh, program there. And... Um, but you know, this is, there aren't that many people in the world that treat CSF leaks. So the wait time was, was pretty long, but I got in there around November of last year. So basically a year ago and had my first targeted blood patches. So let me tell you, so they, the, um, in this case, Dr. Carroll, uh, was looking at nerve roots and, you know, again, I will not attempt to go into the detail on. Uh, well, with, you, with you all started to get nerve pain in a stripe down your arm. And you know that's right. that's not a CSF leak symptom. That's a, a oh yeah yeah that's a that's a compression neuropathy. So right, uh, you found so, out yeah. that you had yet another diagnosis. <laughs> I know it starts to get more complicated. So they, they they're using when they do the blood patches to to answer that question. They they use a fluoroscopic guidance. So they essentially they 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 they're they're using X rays and they they can 
get some resolution. They can see the spinal canal and then they see where the needle is going to go, that what they want to do. If you're going to put, this is, the neurologist at, uh, in Santa Cruz said he probably, he thought I would benefit from a blood patch in the cervical area. But because things are so tight in that area, if you don't have the expertise and the, and the guided um, imaging to go along with it, you can cause a lot of harm, right? You could, you could um, cause a lot of neurological problems or paralyze someone, right? And so it's a very special, specialized line of, line of uh, treatment. So they did these, and I started to feel better a little bit. I got from five to ten minutes uh, on my feet to a couple of hours, which seemed like a miracle. But this other thing started to happen, which was pretty devastating. I lost sensation at first along my left side. Uh, um, I, my, my, um, the, the sensation in my hand went away, um, and I started to experience left-sided weakness. And then uh, I mentioned this, and, you know, we, we continued to treat uh, with blood patches. There was a series that were scheduled, and some of the headache pain started really to get better. But, the, uh, but these other symptoms crept up, which became another very unpleasant enigma uh, that we now know uh, was um, cervical myelopathy, another another piece of the movie, in a sense, that was unexpected. The blood patches probably made those symptoms worse. So I think they caused swelling, a- actually. I think you had a really narrow opening there where the nerve came out, yeah. and I think they caught, they were doing what they were supposed to do, right? Release those inflammatory yeah. factors, and they did. And you got swelling, just like when you get a mosquito bite, you get a bump. But the problem was you didn't have space for that bump. No, that's right. And so we already had a very crowded space. And then we have to go back, like we have to cut back to Hawaii and the emergency room visit there. And the standard protocol, again, for concussions is to do a CT of the neck and the brain. Uh, but that doesn't reveal, like, so if you if you blow out a disc, it's not necessarily going to show that. Not right away. So, no, nope, not at all. Right. And you did blow out a disc, apparently, because you developed some really substantial degenerative changes. I did. And it, it, it made life miserable, and I, could, I couldn't use my hands, and walking was difficult, and it became very evident. I had to go to, I stopped getting blood patches, and, and, and Stanford was recommending that I, that all of a sudden I deal with this new phenomenon of a blown-out disc. In my case, it was between cervical five and six yeah. in the neck. Hey, when uh, we when uh, we so, hear the word weakness, we figure we've got yeah. a cup. We've got a maybe two or three months before that's permanent, regardless of whether uh, we go in and fix it later. That's an important thing right. for the audience to understand: is pain, numbness, okay, you can sit with that. But if you start to get weak, that becomes much more urgent because of the potential for permanent nerve damage. Those motor nerves are in the middle of the nerve. The sensories are on the outside. So if you're squeezing the, if you're squeezing enough to get motor, that's a real problem. Yes, yes. So, you know, I thought, oh, you know, what bramble have I, or, you know, what, what sort of maze have I entered here all of a sudden, you know, dealing with a, a leak that was improving to, to some extent where I had more functionality on my feet, but only a couple of hours a day, but then couldn't use my limbs and they were, they were getting weaker. So um, the recommendation was that I have the, the disc that had, had uh, been blown out. See, essentially what had happened is that the disc during the, the concussion event, um, it, it, it was dislodged and then it calcified. When in the calcification, 
that was pushing on the, the spinal cord and conceivably cutting into the spinal canal or the dural tissue itself and um, causing, causing the whole constellation of problems, or so I thought. So I thought, you know, that, you know, Stanford said, look, you need to get this addressed first. How about we send you down to um, Southern California where they have a specialist? And this specialist down there really wanted to fuse uh, my neck at that level um, uh, and also look for leaks. But he did not want to approach what I had wanted to do with some of your feedback, which is an artificial disc. Do you want to say anything uh, for a moment about adjacent disc disease and if you've had any experiences? Right. Uh, well, it's, yes, I, I do. Thank you. Uh, so when you, the neck is supposed to have essentially eight hinges, you know, and, uh, or 16, you know, eight on each side. And it's supposed to move uh, in, you know, forward and back and sideways and um, rotate and do all of these things. And if you fuse at one level, what typically happens is that you shift the load above and below uh, to discs that are probably already have degeneration themselves, and you will potentially then blow out that disc above and need more surgery. And essentially, I have patients who are just, uh, well, that they've had, they they have what's called failed neck syndrome, which is where you go in and you do one fusion, and they're better for a while, and then the next disc goes. So you go in and you do a second surgery, and you fuse that. And before you know it, uh, you've done all the fusing you can do, but they still have, and they start developing severe chronic pain without movement that isn't from the arthritis in their neck. It's actually from all of the scar tissue that's formed. And these are really tough cases. Occasionally with acupuncture treatments and various types of electrical needle stimulation, you can get rid of the pain loop. But many of these people are locked in a pain loop for the rest of their lives. So if a fusion was our only option, then we'd have to roll the dice. Um, and I'm dice dominoes. I'm really <laughs> rolling all these um, gambling metaphors in here. But if uh, but new technology has developed uh, where the disc is actually replaced, and that is uh, a validated new technology. And you got very enthusiastic about that as well. And uh, we were looking for uh, a place that might do that for you. So please continue with the saga. And I must say, and I'm sure the audience recognizes it right now, it's a game of whack-a-mole. I've got about 15 minutes to wrap up our um, saga. Uh, I think what I'm I'm going to say, you know, you have got the, the whack-a-mole sen- situation of the century. It's just uh, pretty crazy what you've had to go through. So... Uh, yeah, well, let me, you know, in the time, you know, time flies uh, on the radio. Time also flies when you get into a routine of spending every day virtually on your back, just sort of trying to get from one one remedy to the next, or in on the road to getting healthy again. So, I, uh, you know, I declined to have the fusion because, I mean, let's think about it. Think that what what posture does a surfer assume in the water? Right, you bend your neck all the time. Your neck gets 
there's a high propensity probably with that activity to develop arthritis. So I then consulted with a couple of neurosurgeons uh, to make sure that I was a good candidate for the, the disc. The person down in Southern California was not thrilled and declined to work with me further on the leaks. But I did get the disc put in, and then it was very, very interesting because guess what? My myelopathy just went away. It uh, it disappeared altogether. I had full use of my arms again, and 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 uh, the numbness was gone. And the surgeon who performed the the disc replacement also said, you know what? When I looked at C5, C6, um, it was evident that there was a leak there that had likely been caused by an osteophyte or a bone spur, basically from the blown out disc from the concussion that was now fixed. And so I thought, well. Let's see what happens. Maybe I'm in the clear. After you get neck surgery, it takes uh, a little while for the pain from that to go away. But guess what? I still was having the SS leak symptoms, and I was devastated. Uh, So where do I turn next, right? And to remind you, you're listening to Ask Dr. Don. And we have a special guest, Dr. Paul Viotti, who has been regaling us with his Homeric odyssey of... uh, meandering healthcare uh, diagnoses, misdiagnosis, and uh, I don't know whether to call this the classic peeling the onion or the classic whack-a-mole, but uh, maybe you can choose your metaphor there and pick up the story, Dr. Paul. Yeah, I don't know if I have a metaphor, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> here's a political science professor that sure has uh, had to learn an awful lot about anatomy and a lot of other things in the process, and basically to try to get back to surfing again into to everyday normal life where I can teach in a classroom. I'm getting there. But so I come out of this surgery, and once the pain from the surgery subsides, I still have occipital headaches. And they, I, they take a little bit longer to form. And so this, is, this would have been last April or May. At this point, I'm discouraged. I think, okay, where do I have to turn now? I've had all these blood patches. The doctor in Southern California doesn't want to... Uh, deal with me because I, I had the disc replacement in, instead of the, the fusion. So uh, I do some research, and there's another group of experts at the Mayo Clinic. There, there are basically um, three or four places that in the United States that treat CSF leaks. There's in, in Southern California, Cedar sinai there's Stanford here, uh, close to Santa Cruz, the Mayo Clinic, and Duke. And so the only thing you can do is one day at a time, one step at a time. So I had a referral sent to the Mayo Clinic with my imaging, and um, I was accepted there. I was expecting to go there and for them to tell me, well, we don't know what's wrong. You know, you've had the neck surgery, you've had the blood patches, um, you know, and and, and to have to open up a new chapter, right? I mean, after all of this. But the most interesting thing happened there. My dear friend who was helping me get back to surfing again came out uh, when you go to the Mayo Clinic, you do kind of like a residency. You, you live in the town and you undergo all kinds of tests and then they figure out if they can treat you. And so I had to have something without going to t- into too much detail called a digital subtraction myelogram and they do it on two sides. Essentially, they poke a hole again with a 20 gauge needle into your spinal canal and they inject iodinated contrast into it. And then they take um, really uh, better resolution movies of, of that contrast moving through, and they can hopefully see it leaking out. But this so time they did right something side. different, right? You can, they oh. did. They did it on my right side, uh, and it, they said, well, we don't see anything. And 
the next day, last five myelogram. Uh, and uh, this time, there was this most interesting doctor there, uh, you know, who said, you know, I, I just want you to take this. Everybody knows these little coffee stirring straws, right? You don't drink out of them, but you just use them to stir to your coffee, etc. So he said, I would, he put a crimp in it, and he said, I would like you to, um, when we're doing the myelogram, so you're you're under, um, you're, they're creating an X-ray movie essentially, and you're breathing in, uh, and it takes say a half an hour. And so, as I was breathing through this little straw, then uh, it was revealed that I have this very rare thing called a CSF venous fistula, which is essentially a a, a venous structure or a vein that has grown into the spinal canal, the origin or why these things happen isn't necessarily known, although it's associated with trauma. And it was not in my neck. It was in my thoracic area around T6, if I recall. And so I've had basically a vampire vein, if I can use that metaphor. Sucking out your CSF? Yes. A vampire vein is a very... See, you're good at metaphors. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. And this this actually seems to be the... the, um, you know, the, the thing that explained a lot. So why I would even, you know, paddling out, you know, if I go out into the water and, it, with, with post-concussion syndrome, uh, why, why is it that when I'm totally flat that I still get these symptoms? Well, it, the, the, they call it, the, the term of art they, they have for it is resisted inspiration, which I think could be a good band name for anyone that's listening that plays music. But, uh, but resisted inspiration, essentially breathing through a little plastic straw, um, it, uh, uh, it it allows more of a vacuum effect, I gather, and without, again, going to too much detail, they were able to visualize this tiny little fistula that was stealing my CSS fluid and putting it into my into my bloodstream, right? And so the brain, as a consequence, was having to just keep producing more and more of this stuff. So that, was, that, that gave me some hope. And there's another story, another final narrative here, or, or penultimate narrative, I guess we should say, that this links it all back to COVID again. During the pandemic um, at the Mayo Clinic, there's a field called interventional radiology, right? And this interventional radiologist was reading a 1970s French book on um, procedures, uh, you know, before CT scans and, and MRIs existed, really. They used to use a lot of catheters to explore problems. And he thought, you know, with contemporary problems, with contemporary um, technology, we can actually send a catheter to a fistula and put uh, essentially a kind of cement into it to seal it off. And so that's, that, so I was lucky enough. I mean, if, if one can be lucky in all of this, it's to, to the silver lining is that I've been able to keep my job as an academic because of the technology and that in the past, when there was a CSF venous fistula, which is only known uh, known of since 2014, they would have to um, do a laminectomy or remove part of your spine and then clamp off the fistula. But now they can go up through the the groin with a high tech catheter, and then they put um, they put a, a material in there to embolize the vein and seal it off. Basically, um, marine cement for the bloodstream. Yeah, yeah, and. Exactly. When I when I uh, hear you tell the story, Bill Pablo, I'm going to stop you and and, and say, uh, there's there's this amazing seri- series of 
like one doctor will kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, I read that you can increase the the sensitivity of myelograms if you increase the intrathoracic pressure by breathing through a straw. So he has you try it. And that's when the fistula is found. And then the the embolization concept has existed for a while for the brain aneurysms. Remember I talked about the worst possible headache. But the... Uh, that and that is done fairly routinely for a certain aneurysms of a certain size, which we we used there at the base of the brain, and we used to not be able to do anything about them except keep the person's blood pressure low and you know tell them don't drive. But now we can go in there and we can actually plug them in a, so that they don't rupture and break down the line. So applying that concept using old foreign language book where they talk about something and going. And and the light bulb going off on uh, that do- that particular doctor who invented that process, uh, and again, just about the time that somebody starts saying, "Hey, these things exist," he's reading that book, thinking, "Huh, I wonder if we could fix them that way." And it's just um, it it's fascinating story of you know lucky breaks, I think, for you, because, and also just a, a I want to. Just shout out some respect to your persistence, because this so many people would have just give, given up and accepted disability and uh, found a way to live with it. But you have kept you know, knocking at the door and kept trying to find uh, a way out of this. And so I, I just want to congratulate you and let you know we have five minutes to wrap this up. Yeah. And I, I think you have some really useful takeaways, so I'm going to hand it back to you and um, I'll let you know when we, uh, when we have to close, when we, ha- I'll give you like a 90 second uh, warning. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. And to, to all, to everybody listening out there, it has been a saga and uh, very challenging. Um, but I will say something, if you're, if you're experiencing these, these headache symptoms, it's worth doing the 48 hour test on your own to see if there's any improvement there, because that's a huge indicator or a clue. I should say that after my embolization uh, at the Mayo Clinic in August, things are are improved. I have on a pretty good day, four or five hours on my feet. I've learned to measure every hour that I can sit or stand as a kind of miracle in a sense, right? Because it's such a huge improvement uh, compared to uh, compared to five minutes. But I'm going to be going back out to the Mayo Clinic, and we're going to do the movies again, and they're going to. This time, uh, I'm, I'm insisting that I uh, use the straw. And one of the funny stories of, uh, here is that I, you know, you want to be careful as a patient, you know, not to not to go beyond your bounds. Uh, but I, I sent the neurologist uh, an email said, you know, they found a fistula with this straw thingy on the left side. They didn't use it on the right side. Maybe we should do the straws on both sides this time. And he wrote this very well-crafted careful email, which I think um, sums up my three-year journey now, about three years now, pretty well, which is, he said, we're always working to, to improve the diagnostic yield of myelograms. In this regard, I welcome you to bring a straw to your myelogram appointments. And I thought, well, that's, there's, that's, there's sort of a literary quality. Uh, I think that, that should be the title of the, of the book. I, I yeah. welcome you to bring a straw. <laughs> yeah, because we it's are a, not we are not yet allowed to supply a straw, 
But if you wish to bring one, we will be happy to allow you to breathe through it. So yeah. uh, I think so, the, yeah. other, the other take-home points, because we are short on time. Yeah, we are. Uh, would would be that yeah, we're well, going to post a link to uh, for the uh, getting that test, and we're going to post a link to the CSF um, Foundation. I guess there is yeah. a foundation. Uh, Post concussion yeah, can right. be, you know, misdiagnosed. And go ahead. I'll give yeah. you. You've got uh, thir- you've got forty five seconds. <laughs> forty five seconds. Perfect. So yeah, if you have a concussion or, or any kind of injury, and then you're dealing with these vague neurological symptoms, post-concussion syndrome, it's worth considering this as a cause of, of your ailment. And indeed, the link to this uh, CSF League Foundation is great because they just the other day, perfect timing, uh, compiled a list of providers everywhere in the world where, where they exist, where they have specialists. So that'll be a great resource for folks. So thank you, Dr. Don, for having me on the show. The hour flew by. And I'll provide an update. Hopefully after this December Mayo residency, I'll be back in the water. And thank you very much, uh, Dr. Paul. I'll be sending a copy of that. We'll, of course, be posting the show at Ask Dr. Don and here on ksqd.org. Thank you very much for your time. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDon. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.